0: Hello, my name is Jason Nye, I'm a professor of literature and film as well as a writer, and I'll say up front that I think this film has a lot going for it. It has an intriguing character-driven plot, solid performances, and sleek direction from Jack Arnold. And I'll dive deeper into what I appreciate about the film as we go. It's interesting to see this style of credits open the film with names next to quick close-ups of characters who convey in just a few seconds something about themselves. These days, variations on these visual credits have migrated to the back end of films and everything from Marvel movies to the Scream franchise. And then, in true film noir fashion, the story abruptly shifts into the lurid. This is such a surprising opening considering the time when this film was made. It raises a laundry list of questions. Who is this woman? Who is the man who just tore her dress and why is he on the floor? Is he trying to pull her down to him? And why did she respond the way she did? Have they just met, or have they known each other for at least some time? Is this a new development, or is it part of a pattern of behavior? At this point, we know the answers to none of these questions, so they're left to ricochet around our minds while the rest of the opening credits roll. This wordless opening scene was having a moment at the time of this production. Another black-and-white cinemascope noir, Plunder Road, was released the same year as this film, and its opening train heist goes 10 minutes with virtually no dialogue. Then, of course, one year later, Orson Welles would begin Touch of Evil with that magnificent crane shot that tracks a car as it weaves through a border town with a bomb in its trunk. I believe the dialogue-free scene, particularly when it comes at the beginning of a film, makes one of the most unique contributions to cinema as an art form. If we think about art as mimesis, that is, an imitation of real life through personal expression, as applied through technical forms, then the complete reliance on the visual aspects of moving images captured through the camera's eye thoroughly sets scenes such as this one apart from their counterparts in audio dramas, novels, and paintings. In no other art form can you experience exactly what we're about to see. The stage could probably bring you closest, but it's still not the same since it's not mediated by the camera's perspective. That car she was just driving is a 1954 Plymouth Belmont which the company built as a concept car but then never put into production, making it literally one of a kind. It's also unique because it's the rare automobile that featured a reinforced fiberglass body. This was, as far as I can tell, the third film in which it made an appearance after Bundle of Joy in 56 and Mr. Corey earlier in 57. And as of this recording, it still exists. This scene is wonderfully staged. It's mediated through the camera but also filtered through the glass door, which creates an additional layer of distance between us and the residents. While it reveals what's happening in the privacy of their home, turning us all into rear window style voyeurs, it also conceals exactly what they're saying, forcing us to interpret not just what they're arguing about, but what their interaction says about the state of their relationship. While the broad strokes of their conflict are clear, its nuances are left to us to infer. Thus far, the film refuses to hold our hand as we figure out its story, a template that, frankly, I wish more contemporary filmmakers would follow, as these kind of narrative decisions force the viewer to become a more active and engaged participant in the story. One of film noir's consistent topics of inquiry and analysis is the relationship between sex and violence. And in this film, this begins with the tearing of the dress, then moves into Charlene's plan to use it to elicit sexual jealousy from Michael. He becomes enraged and forces her to take him to the man who did this. But as we saw on her face just a few seconds ago, she's starting to have second thoughts because of the impending consequences of her manipulation. But it's too late because that jealousy has now resulted in murder. This opening four minutes is like the entire plot of other noirs in miniature. Great cinematography here as the shadow on the street bisects the victim and perpetrator. Veteran DP Carl E. Guthrie shot this film He worked on a lot of noirs as well as across genres, and his experienced hand lends a great deal of visual credibility to what we're watching. Through just a few lines of dialogue in that old standby of the movies, the newspaper headline, this script economically establishes our main character, James Blaine. He offhandedly mentions his penchant for gambling, and journalist Ralph Adams alludes to his lack of ethics, both of which will loom large later on. This moment also operates as a time capsule for a couple of reasons. At the time that I'm recording this, the relationship between public figures and members of the media is, well, to call it acrimonious would be understating the depth of the divide. But back when this film was made, respectful professional relationships like the one between Blaine and Archer were more common. For example, when JFK was president, he maintained close ties to journalists such as Ben Bradley and James Scotty Reston. Scotty was such a confidant of Kennedy's that it was he whom Kennedy first sought out after a particularly tense meeting with Russian leader Nikija Khrushchev in 1961. The other time capsule element is here, with the on-screen arrival of a couple of Pullman porters. Before I get into that history, I should quickly mention that this is the Burbank, California train station. The production slapped that Springfield sign on the depot to create a fictional counterpart. This interaction spotlights the toll Blaine's work-and-fame-first attitude has taken on his family relationships, although he's not without regret about these consequences, which we'll see momentarily. The Pullman porters were perhaps the most consequential group of workers in the country's history for Black Americans. In the immediate wake of the Civil War, George M. Pullman, having just created a new category of interstate travel with the luxury overnight sleeping car, needed a labor force to serve the passengers on board his trains. He realized that black men, many of whom were recently freed slaves, would work harder and for longer hours and less money than their white counterparts, and that given their social and political disadvantages, they would also make for more controllable employees. In the latter decades of the 19th century, stable jobs for black men that didn't involve strenuous manual labor were few and far between. So despite Pullman shortchanging them relative to what white workers would have received, securing and maintaining these jobs became a highly competitive endeavor. And by the early part of the 20th century, the Pullman Company employed more black men than any other company in America. While Pullman didn't intend for this outcome, he inadvertently helped create a black middle class. The training and experience Pullman porters received meant they could move into other better paying jobs in the service and hospitality industries. One of the most notable porters, J.W. Mays, ended up in the White House, working for nine presidents spread over more than 40 years. The catalyst for this career change occurred when Mays came into contact with President McKinley when he served him during one of McKinley's overnight train trips. By the time this film was made, the porters had achieved another historic milestone. They had long since formed the first all-black labor union, the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, which was born of necessity since the union that represented white railway workers refused to accept them. It took 12 years since their founding, but in 1937, they won the first collectively bargained agreement between a union representing black workers and a large U.S. company. It secured the porters better pay and a sharp decrease in working hours. Down to 240 per month, from the 400 they'd previously been required to work. And yes, that worked out to about 100 hours per week. This scene implies in a coded way common to films from this era, that while Blaine might feel bad about fracturing his family, he doesn't feel so bad that it stops him from indulging in extramarital affairs. More on that later. The lessons their union leaders learned during those negotiations would lay the groundwork for the civil rights movement, which was gaining momentum when this film was made. One of the porters and union leaders, Edgar D. Nixon, had just months prior to this film's summer 1956 production played a key role in organizing the Montgomery, Alabama bus boycott that protested Rosa Parks' arrest. When the Pullman service shut down in 1968, it marked the end of an era, but by then, the porters had played a significant role in many aspects of American history. If you'd like to read more about this, you can check out Johnny F. Kervin's memoir, Hey Boy, Hey George, the Pullman Porter, and Larry Ty's history, Rising from the Rails, Pullman Porters and the Making of the Black Middle Class. The production turned this Glendale, California train station into the fictional Bolton by putting up another sign. Here, I need to say thank you to David Kosha of the Southern Pacific Historical and Technical Society for identifying these train stations for me. David brought up something interesting about this scene. He noted that the establishing shot hides a sizable portion of the depot, probably because it features such unique architecture. In other words, Jack Arnold wanted to maintain the illusion of this as Bolton, instead of having audience members get taken out of the story by recognizing it as Glendale. This reminded me of the opening of director Sidney Lumet's book Making Movies, in which he recalls a discussion he had with the great Japanese director Akira Kurosawa about his late masterpiece 1985's Ron, a reimagining of Shakespeare's King Lear set in 16th century Japan. Lumet writes, quote, I once asked Akira Kurosawa why he had chosen to frame a shot in Ron in a particular way. His answer was that if he'd panned the camera one inch to the left, the Sony factory would be sitting there exposed, and if he'd panned an inch to the right, We would see the airport, end quote. In other words, sometimes you choose the shot, and sometimes the shot chooses itself for you. Look at these youths. Get off the car, you delinquents. Now that Blaine has arrived in Bolton, our big-time city slicker versus small town sheriff conflict will start to come into focus. As it does, I wouldn't blame you if your derivative plot alarm bells started ringing, but this film still manages to find some new notes to play as it travels down its well-trod narrative path. This house that Blaine is going to, where he'll meet the Restons, is located on Mulholland Drive in Los Angeles. It's one of the many unique mid-century modern homes in the area. Elaine Stewart plays Charlene, whom we'll see in the pool, and this role was meant to be a breath of fresh air for her. She'd been stuck under contract at MGM for years with almost nothing to show for it after she'd broken out in 1952's The Bad and the Beautiful. In what would become the last year of her deal, she didn't even spend any time on the MGM lot. That's how much nothing the studio was assigning her. She decided to ask for a release from her contract, which the studio gave her, and she engaged in some image reworking to drum up interest while she took a part in an off-Broadway production of Bus Stop. She took out two ads in two different industry trade papers, one that showed off her body in a revealing picture and another that had a dress the reader was supposed to cut out and paste onto her body in the other ad. She also decided to dye her red hair a platinum blonde, which you can see here, and adopt some new accompanying fashion choices. She explained it this way, quote, I'm adjusting my whole life to a new motif, silver. Everything's going to be silver. All my jewelry is silver. I have a new silver Mercedes to drive and a silver poodle named Clicquot. I use silver nail polish and eat off silver dishes. End quote. The PR gambit worked. Universal took notice and signed her with this film as her first assignment. With that red hair dyed blonde, she's giving off some real Rita Hayworth and the Lady from Shanghai vibes. And she's also vamping it up quite a bit so far. There is no narrative reason for Jeff Chandler to change into these swim trunks other than to just show off his legs. This scene shows Blaine's internal contradictions. He's clearly disgusted with both of the Restons, but he's not leaving. He says he's not impressed by Michael Reston's bank account, yet he's sticking around to take his money for defending him. In this, the film's most loaded scene, he plays the part of a mock prosecutor, trying to tear apart Charlene's story so he can develop the most effective defense strategy. Yet we're left to wonder how much Blaine believes her version of events. The Restons are wealthy people in a dysfunctional marriage that is plagued by infidelity. And they are also people who are more than willing to use their money to manipulate the legal system to their advantage. In other words, Blaine and the Restons are two sides of the same coin. And perhaps that's why Blaine despises them. When he looks at them, he sees a funhouse mirror image of his own faults. I love the combination of black and white film and cinemascope, so I was very happy to get this assignment, especially because this film holds the distinction of being Universal's first black and white film shot using the technology. Films like this combine the beauty of black and white cinematography with the added clarity the cinemascope process could provide through its use of an anamorphic lens that captured extra information in its uncompressed aspect ratio that filled the entire frames of a 35 millimeter negative, and then when projected, compressed that extra information into the aspect ratio of the picture we're watching. Of course, one of the problems that would occasionally result when compressing the image into this aspect ratio is the squashed face issue, which crops up from time to time in the close-ups of this film. Early results were also mixed in terms of the clarity I just mentioned, because the filmmakers were still figuring out how to use this system. But by 1957, they'd made significant strides in this area, resulting in the kind of picture we're watching. Some issues persisted, though. You might have noticed how as Charlene walked from the frame's edge to its center, she went from appearing more to less vertically stretched and distorted. That's a result of the anamorphic process and has continued to be an issue throughout subsequent decades. One film with similar moments of image warping that popped into my mind is Die Hard. CinemaScope was originally developed at 20th Century Fox and debuted in 1953 with that studio's release of The Robe. At the time, studios were facing a massive decline in box office receipts that had been steadily worsening over the past several years driven in part by a mass migration of American viewers to television, where they could watch shows and older films for free. This led to all sorts of theatrical innovations, such as switching from black and white to color, the 3D craze that lasted from late 1952 to 1954, and the move to retrofit screening auditoriums with wider screens, many of which were about the same aspect ratio of today's televisions. CinemaScope pushed the aspect ratio even wider, as you can see by the black bars on the top and bottom of your screen. Fox cared so much about protecting their initial investment that when the robe was being shot, they assigned armed guards to stand next to the camera to protect the lens. And they would take the lens off the camera when not shooting and keep it guarded under lock and key. In its publicity materials, Fox touted its new process by claiming, quote, CinemaScope achieves the illusion of depth without glasses, it's lifelike panoramic scope gives a feeling of complete engulfment and participation in the action, end quote. This wasn't just typical Hollywood hyperbole. A 1953 Time Magazine article claimed, Cinemascope will abolish at one stroke the art of the film as it has been practiced. Gone is the viewer's sense of eavesdropping on activities that are, after all, going on in another room. In Cinemascope, the illusion of the other room outflanks the beholder in his theater seat and overwhelms him with a frontal attack of enormous images and sounds, End quote. A good portion of this film was shot in and around Palm Springs, California, and we're seeing one of those locations here. The Rope was the biggest box office draw of 1953, which is relevant to this film not just because of CinemaScope, but because Jeff Chandler had been up for its lead role but his universal contract took priority, so Victor Mature got the part. The number two film of 53 was This is Cinerama, which was projected at an even slightly wider aspect ratio and onto a curved screen. After seeing these returns, theaters around the country worked to make at least some of their screens wide enough to accommodate the Cinemascope aspect ratio, and by the year this film was released, 80% of all theaters could play a Cinemascope film. This rapid adoption probably wouldn't have happened if Fox had stuck to its original insistence that all theaters showing CinemaScope did so on curved screens and also installed the expensive stereophonic sound system, which had discrete left, right, and rear channels. After understandable pushback from the theaters who worried it would be prohibitively expensive to adopt, they dropped both requirements. It also helped that Fox, which was in bad financial shape when it bet the farm on this new technology, was more than happy to license it out for a hefty fee to all of the other major studios, who were maybe not happy, but definitely willing to pay it in order to not get left behind in the race for those box office dollars. But as it turned out, they wouldn't need to do the licensing, since legal teams at other studios led by Paramount showed that Fox didn't actually have an exclusive license to use the anamorphic lenses at the heart of the system. So, starting in 54, the studios collectively started churning out dozens of Cinemascope films per year. Now, initially, Fox succeeded in limiting the other studios to only using the technology for big-budget A-pictures shot in color. But by 1956, black-and-white films like this one had started to use the process to give their films more of a prestigious, big-budget feel simply by their association with those grand A-pictures that were shot in the same aspect ratio. The first black-and-white Cinemascope film to go into production was MGM's The Power and the Prize. Fox itself wasn't willing to go all the way, though, opting to label its own B black-and-white film's Regal Scope, even though they were shot using the exact same technology as Cinemascope. Universal had no such problems, and as I mentioned, this film would be the first Universal Cinemascope production in black-and-white. At least one director at Universal, Douglas Sirk, adopted the shooting in black-and-white cinemascope grudgingly. Cirque would later claim that he wanted to shoot 1957's The Tarnished Angels in color, but Universal didn't have enough faith in the picture to let him have his way, instead making him shoot it in the less expensive black-and-white.
1: What's he raised out here? Stanley? <laughs>
2: He raises any handy figures to beat. <laughs> Sounds like me, eh? Well, it's your convenience anytime.
0: What we don't know yet is that this entire trip is a setup, and that while Blaine might think he has the smarts to win over Sheriff Hoke, played by Jack Carson, Hoke is playing chess while Blaine is playing checkers. This is another classic noir element, that people who are supposed to be pillars of moral rectitude are actually corrupt and always playing an angle. Huh? This is a cleanly staged and framed shot from director Jack Arnold, who prioritizes clean sight lines and geometric blocking. Later on, I'll talk in more details about his career and his specific directorial choices on this project. Dead? Dead. The woman at the slot machine is none other than June McCall, who was one of the most famous pinup models of the 1950s. Just to put a button on my Cinemascope discussion, a picture like this fit right into Universal's playbook in the late 50s. As a second-tier studio that didn't greenlight a lot of big-budget extravaganzas, making a lot of films like this was a way for them to split the difference between economical budgets and the perception of prestige. After this film, several more black-and-white Cinemascope films followed. In addition to The Tarnished Angels, there was also The Midnight Story, Man Afraid, Appointment with the Shadow, and The Female Animal. This is where we learn that Blaine has a history of getting acquittals for seemingly unwinnable cases. Didn't have it this picture came together relatively quickly. Universal purchased screenwriter George Zuckerman's story in February of 56, and by that July, Universal had landed on Chandler for the lead role, quickly filling in the rest of the cast around him. It started shooting the week of August 18th, and production ran through the last week of September. By that December, Universal slated it for an April 57 release. As I mentioned earlier, they shot part of the film in Palm Springs starting right after Labor Day. They shot along Palm Canyon Drive, Palms to Pines Highway, the Tennis Club area, and some desert spots in the Thousand Palms District. In total, about 100 people from the studio spent time in the town while they were shooting there, including Chandler's wife and kids. Apparently, the heat was especially potent that week. Columnist Dorothy Manners reported that during the shoot, the temperature hit 113 degrees. They were all probably relieved to get back to what we're seeing now, which is Courthouse Square on the Universal backlot. There's nothing on the other side of that courthouse facade other than some scaffolding. Universal originally built it in Hollywood for another noir, 1948's An Act of Murder. Jack Arnold had already shot scenes on this set for It Came from Outer Space and Tarantula. While it's been used in dozens of films and TV shows, This facade is most famous for portraying the fictional town of Hill Valley in Back to the Future. Yes, this is the same building that Doc Brown scales to capture the lightning bolt that powers Marty McFly's trip back to 1985.
2: I called
1: the hotel. What's on your mind?
2: You. I hear you separated from your wife.
1: How does that concern you?
2: You interest me.
1: It's the reason my wife left me. I interest other women.
2: Can you forget for a while
1: that I'm your client? Whatever you say won't be held against you.
0: In case the film hasn't already made it clear, yes, this means that these two characters are about to sleep together off screen. While the production code had been weakened through the 1950s, characters still had to talk in at least somewhat coded language about sex. Although, that dialogue is a lot more brazen than what would have been permitted just five years earlier. One thing to notice in this scene and elsewhere is that Charlene is often wearing black, while Diane is frequently wearing white. As was reported at the time, this was an intentional choice by the production to separate the two female characters into moral categories of good and evil. As the film depicts them, Charlene's the predatory femme fatale while Diane is the pure wife who stands by her man. This kind of categorizing has a long history in film noir. These stories often feature a male protagonist who must choose between the two. If he pursues the femme fatale, the story punishes him with imprisonment or death. If he decides to pursue the woman of virtue, he's rewarded with a stable romance and a satisfactory narrative conclusion. Blaine faces that exact choice in this film, and while he stumbles out of the gate, he eventually rights himself and realizes his place is with his family. One downside to this setup, though, is ignoring potential shades of gray by pigeonholing each female character into a one-dimensional presentation. While Elaine Stewart as Charlene and Jean Crane as Diane both do solid work with what the script gives them, both women could undoubtedly benefit from more complex characterization. on your I wonder when the witness box that separates the attorney from the person testifying became standard in courtrooms. If I were called to testify and it was set up like this, I think I'd never stop feeling unduly exposed.
1: Larry Bell to be truthful.
0: 1957, the year of this film's release, turned into a banner year for the legal drama, as 12 Angry Men, Paths of Glory, and Witness for the Prosecution were all released. Then just six months after this film premiered, and while it was still playing in some theaters, TV's greatest courtroom drama debuted on September 21st on CBS, with Raymond Burr as Perry Mason. While the courtroom drama enjoyed some noteworthy earlier efforts, such as director John Ford's 1939 Young Mr. Lincoln, starring Henry Fonda, the late 50s and early 60s turned into a golden era of sorts for the genre, as it provided a durable template for critically and commercially successful efforts. In fact, the genre had arguably its greatest four-year theatrical run ever, with Anatomy of a Murder, Compulsion, and The Young Philadelphians in 1959, Inherit the Wind in 60, Judgment at Nuremberg in 61, and To Killing Mockingbird in 62, which, by the way, also used Universal's Courthouse Square backlot. Concurrently, TV networks were trying to replicate Perry Mason's success, with CBS adding The Defenders to its roster in 61, and then one year later, NBC countering with Sam Benedict, starring Edmund O'Brien, a show based on the exploits of a real-life trial lawyer named Jacob W. Ehrlich. The Defenders was not only created by 12 Angry Men's writer Reginald Rose and starred the film's co-star E.G. Marshall, but also featured at various points seven additional cast members from that film. Rose based the series on an episode he wrote of the TV show Studio One, which aired in 1957 and featured both William Shatner and Steve McQueen. These series, while reaching varying levels of success, provided the template for scores of shows that would follow in their footsteps, such as the ever-expanding Law & Order universe. There will always be an audience for courtroom dramas, because of the way they lend themselves to an easy-to-follow narrative structure that guarantees a resolution at its end. This film was no exception. When it opened in the spring of 57, it landed in the top 10 grocers for April at number 9, one spot behind director Jack Arnold's other film in theaters, The Incredible Shrinking Man, and one ahead of 12 Angry Men, which was off to a slow start. In some locations, theaters ran The Incredible Shrinking Man for the last time the day before this film opened, so Arnold enjoyed his pictures running back to back. Believe it or not, this film actually ended up outgrossing 12 Angry Men. The Tattered Dress ended up pulling in $1.43 million in theater rentals in 1957, while 12 Angry Men only netted one million. That placed this film firmly inside the top 100 grossing pictures of the year, landing it at 68. And coincidentally, this and The Incredible Shrinking Man made the exact same amount of money in theaters. This scene with its discussions of making time and panty raids serves as a preview of the battles director Otto Preminger would fight with the censors when advocating for the inclusion of more specific language in Anatomy of a Murder, which is probably the greatest courtroom drama of all time. Even in 57, films had to tiptoe around discussions of sexual assault. It wasn't until Preminger's film that a character in a Hollywood production says the word rape on screen. Now, I'm no legal expert, but it seems like the judge is giving Blaine a remarkable amount of latitude in this line of inquiry. It works though, and I think this is one of the film's best scenes, because of how it shows us just how willing Blaine is to cross the line between truth-seeking and sophistry, and just how good he is at disguising the latter as the former. By 1956, the phrase, get me Geisler, had a universally known meaning in Hollywood. If you were an actor, producer, director, or any other kind of mover or shaker who found yourself in a legal situation that seemed hopeless, you wanted to hire Jerry Geisler who was by the mid-50s easily the most famous celebrity defense attorney, and had been for quite some time. One of his first major cases involved being part of the defense team for fellow attorney Clarence Darrow, who would game fame for, among other cases, the Scopes Monkey and the Leopold and Loeb murder trials. His roster of clients included Errol Flynn, whom Geisler secured an acquittal for in Flynn's statutory rape trial, and Bugsy Berkeley, whom he successfully defended against murder charges. Charlie Chaplin and Robert Mitchum had acquired his services at various points. Gangster and Hollywood interloper Bugsy Siegel hired Geisler to successfully get him acquitted of some charges. Geisler also got a jury to acquit Dr. George Hodel of child molestation and incest charges. If that name sounds familiar, it's because a decent number of people believe he's the murderer in the famous Black Dahlia case. And a couple of years before this film went into production, Marilyn Monroe hired Geisler to represent her in her divorce from Joe DiMaggio. So, why am I bringing him up? Because our protagonist is loosely inspired by him. And producer Al Zugsmith sent the script to him and offered him the part of Lester Rawlings. The two men were friends, so the offer was probably more than just a publicity stunt. Either way, Geisler turned him down and the role went to Edward Andrews, who had last worked for Universal as a truly nasty villain in the unguarded moment. However, Geisler did agree to stay on the project as a technical advisor and a coach for Jeff Chandler, helping him through the ins and outs of the courtroom scenes. The studio invited some of Geisler's colleagues in the legal profession to come to set one day to see Chandler in action. And once he'd wrapped, everyone on the set, the visiting lawyers, the cast, and the crew, burst into applause at how well he'd acquitted himself. No pun intended. Meanwhile, Geisler had more famous cases to try, like the one that came up a year after this film when Cheryl Crane, the then 14-year-old daughter of actress Lana Turner, stabbed to death gangster Johnny Stompanato, Turner's abusive boyfriend. Geisler framed it as a case of justifiable homicide, and the jury agreed, which is in some ways not dissimilar from what we're seeing here. Here's Philip Reed as Michael Reston. He wanted his character to wear a double-breasted tuxedo in the film, and the studio said no.
1: Thank you May I ask what the money is for just a small advance on my fee you sounded most urgent over the telephone can't tell you anymore it might incriminate me good night
0: again charlene's wearing black here blaine trades one vice for another he blows off a clandestine meetup with charlene but he's so addicted to risk that he asks for an advance on his payment so he can gamble and in the process walk right into sheriff hoax trap this was an era of both creative and exploitative film marketing. The poster for this film plays up its lurid subject matter as it shouts, quote, Every guy in town knew the dame in the tattered dress. She was as cheap as she was rich and as pretty as she was vicious. And now she stood there giggling at the body in the street. Was it murder or the unwritten law? Or was it a town's hidden evil showing through a woman's tattered dress? End quote. We're about to see cinematographer Guthrie's expertise at work in a moody, evocative moment as the cigar smoke drifts into the light above the table. The studio once again returned to its Jerry Geisler connections when putting together the film's advertisements. The promotional materials it sent out to theaters included a quote from Geisler, saying of Chandler's performance, quote, Jeff is very good. He handles himself extremely well and is most believable. I wish I could sound so good, and I also wish I was as handsome. End quote. In the May 1957 issue of fan magazine Photoplay, both Jean Crane and Elaine Stewart's names were answers to the magazine's crossword puzzle, and for both, the clue connected to this film. For Stewart, who plays Charlene, the clue read, Not too virtuous lady in the tattered dress. End quote. Crane also appeared in a cross promotional ad that mentioned her role in this film alongside some ad copy extolling the wonders of luck's facial soap. During this time period, theaters would also get in on the act with all sorts of wacky promotions to get people to buy tickets. For instance, in San Francisco, the head of publicity for the Golden Gate Theater decided to drum up some press by seating the opening day theatergoers on a mock jury that watched the film and then voted to convict or acquit Chandler's character. The jury was made up of six men and six women, and 10 minutes before the film concluded, the projectionist stopped running it, and all 12 individuals left the theater and were taken to a local radio station, where they cast their votes live on air. The first round of voting came in at 11 to 1 for an acquittal, which went to 12 to 0 during the second round. Then they got back to the theater and watched the final 10 minutes, but for some reason they had to watch the entire film again to get to it. This was a go-to publicity tactic for films like this. A different theater pulled a similar stunt this same year for Columbia's abandoned ship when it tallied up the guilty and innocent votes for the film's central character, played by Tyrone Power, and then kept that tally updated throughout the day on a chalkboard on the street outside the theater. It is. Although, I do have to wonder, who was that one person who voted to convict Blaine of bribing a juror? We know from the get-go that it was all a setup. In fact, that lack of ambiguity is one element of the plot that pulls the film away from noir and toward a more straightforward drama. In noir, people are often not who they seem to be. This is why so many classic noirs feature such great plot twists that reveal previous unrealized evils. Here, as we reach the conclusion of Act 1, everyone's role has been laid out, and there aren't really any narrative surprises left to explore. Carol Morrow, the juror making the accusation of bribery has yet to become part of the plot, But even once she does, her role lacks any major surprises. Unless you count when she guns down the sheriff at the courthouse steps at the end.
2: Hello, Billy. Diane! Come in. Gee, but I'm sure glad to see you. Where's Jim? I don't know. I was in the bedroom calling down for some breakfast, then I came in here and Jim's gone. How about some coffee? Thank you. I came in from Vegas last night as soon as I heard about the grand jury indicting Jim.
1: What's the story, Billy?
2: Simple hair-raising. Jim was taken for five grand in a poker game out in some desert shack. Then a dame turned up with the money. A dame on the jury, Carol Morrow. And she's saying that Jim gave her the money as a bribe.
0: Notice how Diane's wearing white. Billy's explanation lays out what happened for us rather than the story stringing us along and making us wonder if Blaine could have done this. A true noir twist, and to be fair, it would require some other story alterations such as the elimination of this scene, would be that after Blaine gives his rousing closing argument and gets acquitted, we discover that he did bribe Carol. When I start the research process for commentary tracks, I never know what kind of information I'll come across. And with this film, I discovered that it will forever be etched into history as a footnote to a tragedy. On July 8, 1959, a group of American soldiers who were stationed at the Bien Hoa Air Base in Vietnam were watching this film in the mess hall. When one of them stood up to change over the reels, Viet Cong fighters ambushed them. They shot and killed the man holding this film. Then one of them detonated a bomb that killed a second American and injured a third. They also killed two South Vietnamese guards and an eight-year-old Vietnamese boy. These two soldiers the Viet Cong killed were the first American casualties of what would balloon into the Vietnam War. We're about to get back to Sheriff Hoke now that he's established the upper hand, and Jack Carson does a great job of giving off some real Cheshire Cat energy in his conversations with Blaine. By this point in his career, Carson had spent two decades in film, radio, and television as a character actor, establishing his public persona in part after part that played him up as an affable comedian. This part represents a real change of pace for him and gives him an opportunity to play against type. And personally, I think he nails the darker elements of Hoke. He effortlessly weaves between Hoke's all shucks good old boy veneer and the nastiness that lurks underneath, which will come into closer focus later. Carson died in 1963 at age 52 from cancer, just six years after this film's release. And tragically, he's one of three actors with major parts in this film who would pass away not long after completing their work here. The other two are even younger than Carson. I'll talk about them later.
1: Cut yourself? I admit it, would you arrest me for attempted suicide? <laughs> you could tell me in for stealing your Jeep. No, no, it's yours anytime you want it. You know where I've been, don't you? Staley's shack, I guess. Should I have found him at home? There's no telling about Staley. No, no poker table, no chips. Oh. You sure you found the right shack? My only mistake was going there in the first place. Now, where will I find Staley? He comes and goes. Where does he go to? You know something? I never got around asking him. Have a drink? No, thanks. You won't help me, then?
2: Yeah, I'll
1: do all I can. What about the other players? Who were they? Well, the introductions weren't exactly formal, but you mean to tell me you don't know the crowd that plays poker with Staley? I'll try to round some of them up as soon as I can. Sheriff, are you out to get me? I wish you wouldn't think that. Well, I hit you pretty hard in the courtroom. Uh-huh. You never raised your voice once. Is Mrs. Morrow a friend of yours? Every voter's
2: a friend of mine. Even if a voter commits perjury? You know something, Mr. Blaine? i like to believe you, but it's not easy considering the evidence.
0: Carson's so good in this scene. He knows he holds all the power, and that comfort renders him calm and unflappable in the face of Blaine's barrage of questions. The scene also serves to put Blaine in his place. In the courtroom, he has a legal apparatus at his disposal and can compel answers from witnesses on the stand. But out here, the tables have turned, and this is the first time in this story that his typical approach to winning hasn't worked. This shot is another example of Arnold's geometric staging as Blaine walks through three symmetrically aligned doors and straight at the camera. It's a good example of how set design can support a director's specific style. Jean Crane's Diane is about to arrive back on screen and the way she's shown in a revealing slip fixing her garter shows how again the production codes grip was weakening with regard to what could be shown or not shown on screen. And Diane's in white yet again. This scene with its close-ups and heightened emotions pulls the film away from noir and into the realm of the marital melodramas that were burning up the screen in the 1950s. Notice Crane's hairstyle here, she told one reporter that she was wearing some of her hair down on her forehead because, quote, I have a very high forehead and I'd look like a peeled onion without something hiding it, end quote. Crane had a career filled with close calls and near misses with classic films. She could have made her debut in The Magnificent Ambersons after Orson Welles met her in a cafeteria and ended up so taken by her that he asked her to do a screen test for the part of Lucy, but he ended up offering the part to Anne Baxter then when crane was up for the title role in all about eve baxter got in crane's way again and got the part and then picked up a best actress nomination for playing it chandler and crane couldn't get other parts of this scene right needing a dozen takes but then arnold announced he was perfectly happy with this kissing moment after the first time they tried it chandler griped in mock frustration quote wouldn't you know it A dull scene usually has to be shot 20 times, but you get a beautiful girl in your arms and right away it's fine the first time. It's jealousy on the director's part, I say. End quote. He and Arnold had a laugh about that while Jack Carson, who was on the set, chimed in saying, quote, Never mind, Jeff. It only proves what all your publicity says. Your screen-lover technique is so great, you instinctively do love scenes right the first time. End quote. when crane started this scene her shoulder was covered but there it's bare there was a man off camera who pulled on a thread of fabric that was tied to her slip to get it to come off i'm not sure why they thought they needed that they just ended up cutting around the moment it comes off anyway this scene continues unpacking Hoke's character his office decorations show him still chained to his days as a football star unable to let go of his past glories this speaks to the arrogance and pride that drives his self-centeredness. He had power once and he's doing whatever it takes to maintain and consolidate that power into his middle age, even if it means hurting the people around him. Right to circle back to Jean Crane, her and Jeff Chandler's careers feature a major similarity. Just as Chandler picked up his only Oscar nomination for playing a character with a different ethnicity than his own, which I'll talk about later, so did Crane. 1949 proved to be the high watermark of her career after she appeared in both the Oscar-winning A Letter to Three Wives and Pinky, in which she played the titular character, a black woman who can pass for white. That this could and did happen in back-to-back years, 50 for Crane and 51 for Chandler, speaks to just how much the conversations and practices have evolved over the past 75 years regarding the issue of on-screen representation of characters from American minority ethnic groups. By the mid-50s, Crane had been put through the ringer in her personal life, dealing with a husband, Paul Brinkman, who'd been serially unfaithful to her. However, as a staunch Catholic, Crane was torn about what to do, given the church's teachings on divorce. They also had four children together. By mid-1956, they nonetheless appeared headed toward divorce. That July, gossip columnist Dorothy Manners wrote that, quote, with all of her divorce troubles with Paul Brinkman now resolved in an amicable settlement, minus added mudslinging, Jean Crane is eager to work again, and Universal International is obliging her. Jean starts soon with Jeff Chandler in the tattered dress, end quote. During an on-set interview, she said that her marriage was over and she was ready to put it behind her. While they were shooting in the San Fernando Valley, she would commute home every day to have lunch with her kids. She was clearly stressed during the shoot, on the weekends she would disappear and no one from the production knew where she went. When gossip columnist Sheila Graham tried to pry the information out of her, Crane said, quote, I just want to get away from everything and everyone, and I couldn't very well do that if I told where I was going, quote. Well, Here's Diane in white and Charlene in black.
1: When did you arrive? This morning. Oh, you have a very remarkable husband. Yeah, very remarkable. Well, what's your complaint? I just don't like the mess you made. The mess I made? I didn't ask you to bribe Mrs. Morrow. That was your own stupid idea. If I ever hear you say that again, sir, help me, I'll kill you. You mean you didn't give her the money? No, Mrs. Reston, I didn't. My only mistake was in defending you and your idiot husband. In parting, may I say, you deserve each other?
0: Crane and Stuart play that scene perfectly. Charlene and Diane express just the right amount of passive-aggressive sniping. These two women at the table with Blaine's rival, Lester Rawlings, were beauty pageant queens making their film debuts. Miss Germany, Marina Orschel, is on the right, and Miss Sweden, Ingrid Good is on the left. Both had signed contract player deals at Universal, but neither would go on to break through in a major way, although Good would achieve a level of cinematic infamy with her role in the so-bad-it's-good 1959 sci-fi horror film, The Killer Shrews. During an interview at the time of this film's release, a reporter asked her what foreign languages she spoke, and she responded, English. And at one point, the studio had planned for Miss Universe winner Carol Morris, who was Good's roommate and had just beaten her in Orshell earlier that summer, to appear in the film as well. They shot a scene with her, but it ended up cut. These women ended up cast in this film because they'd been seen on the Universal lot in July, just before shooting began when the studio treated them and dozens of other Miss Universe contestants to a tour, some photos with stars, and a lunch. And who else had the studio time to greet them at the gate when they arrived but Jeff Chandler. This is a well-constructed script. At exactly the halfway point here, Blaine is forced to swallow his pride and realize that he needs outside counsel to defend him. Because, as he repeats the famous truism more than once, the person who represents himself in court has a fool for a client. It's clearly tough on him, though, as we just saw him there struggling to break free from his own arrogance. His character arc will make for an interesting contrast with Hoke as the film progresses. (laughs) It's nice to see the film foreground a female reporter among what was at the time a male-dominated profession. She's played by Helen Marshall, who just played a nurse for Jack Arnold in The Incredible Shrinking Man. To briefly loop back to my discussion of Gene Crane, going through such a difficult family matter publicly must have been torturous, especially when the press was more than happy to capitalize on it. Jean and Paul reconciled not long before this film went into production, but the same month this film hit theaters, a piece titled Can Jean Crane Keep Her Husband Home? ran in Modern Screen magazine with passages like this one from author Dick Williams. Quote, Can there be hope of permanent happiness for a couple who have split as violently as Jean and Paul did? What about Paul's roving eye, his dinner for two dates in quiet out-of-the-way places, his come on up for a drink, Jean's in Laguna invitations. Can Jean Crane keep her husband home now any more than she could a year ago? End quote. Notice where Williams places the responsibility for their family success, not on her husband straightening himself out, but on her keeping him home. The implication being that if she couldn't stop him from wandering, it was at least somewhat her fault. Against the odds, though, they stayed married until they both died within two months of each other in late 2003. This is where Rawlings basically tells him to take a plea deal, because he thinks Blaine did it. Everyone in this film assumes, not completely without reason, that Blaine is worse than he is, and it's that disconnect between his bad reputation and who he believes himself to be that helps spur him to bring the two contrasting portions of himself into greater harmony. Although it's a tough and uneven process, he responds here by threatening to break Rawlings' jaw, so he still has plenty of sharp edges. And then we witnessed one of the film's most devastating interactions, as Diane reveals she's known more than she's been letting on.
1: Perhaps you'd better answer your wife. Set her straight. You're the one that needs to be set straight. You're through before you begin. You better get out of here before I break your jaw. You want a drink? No, thank you. I'm going to bed. Look, was I out of line? No, no. You referred to me as your your husband. Did I? Please stay, I need you. Still legally man and wife.
2: Did that stop you with Charlene Reston?
0: Ouch! She just nailed him right where he deserves it. One note about Jeff Chandler here. While this film was in theaters, Sidney Skolsky quipped in PhotoPlay magazine, quote, When they want to age Jeff Chandler, will they take the gray out of his hair and darken it? End quote. As counterintuitive as that might seem, Universal execs had wanted Chandler to dye his hair black for this role, but he told them no. His hair, which had started graying when he was just 15 years old, had long since become his calling card, mixing in the perception of maturity and sophistication with his youthful and athletic build. There's no way he was going to let the studio take that away from him. He was, believe it or not, only 37 when he made this film. For all of you out there watching, here's a quick question for you. When you started watching this film for the first time, did you have shirtless Jack Carson on your tattered dress bingo card? I didn't, but here he comes. Since this is the scene where we discover Hoke and Carol Morris are in cahoots, now is a good time to talk about Gail Russell, who plays Carol. She's another one of this film's players who died an untimely death. She signed her first contract at Paramount at just 18 years old, but within a couple of years, she developed a debilitating dependence on alcohol, which she used to cope with her severe shyness and stage fright. Despite her alcoholism, she kept her career going strong for several years in the 40s, teaming up with stars such as Alan Ladd, John Wayne, and Edward G. Robinson. But by the early 50s, her personal demons had grown so overpowering that her roles thinned out and then completely dried up. After 1951's Air Cadet, she didn't appear in another film for five years, when she started an attempted comeback with 56's Seven Men From Now. In between, she got into scrapes with the law. First, it was a DUI, then she drove drunk again and hit another car carrying a family. The family sued, and she settled out of court. She also got divorced in 1954, and that same year almost died from hepatitis. (laughs) After Seven Men From Now, she landed this role and garnered some strong reviews for her work. But then, on July 4th, 1957, she drove drunk again, and this time crashed her car into a coffee shop that was thankfully closed. However, she still injured a janitor who was on the premises. The next day the Los Angeles Times ran a picture of her car crashed halfway into the ruined shop next to a heartbreaking shot of her trying and struggling to touch her nose during her sobriety test. When she didn't show up to court for the ensuing trial, the police went to her house to arrest her on a felony warrant and found her unconscious, a half-finished drink nearby. Her trial was rescheduled for October and her lawyer, well, he would be none other than Jerry Geisler. In September of 57, Hollywood columnist Erskine Johnson penned a piece titled What's Ahead for Gale." It begins this way, Quote, The girl who lives in a neat little Veteran Avenue apartment on the wrong side of the tracks by Hollywood social standards is something of a veteran herself on both sides of those tracks. Not in years, though. She's only 33 and still beautiful enough to play starring roles in movies. She's a veteran of fame and shame. She has a trim figure, a mind that can think, the same demureness that made her famous on the screen, and clear sparkling eyes that somehow refuse to reflect the lost yesterdays and the lost weekends in her life. Johnson's sympathy for her comes through clearly. In other parts of the article, he blamed a vicious studio system that tried to pound performances out of a shy teenager who wasn't ready for it, and who would scurry across the street from the studio lot to a bar where she could take the edge off the anxiety. She told Johnson she was going to win this war. She also said, quote, my only regret will be if I can't make something good out of all of this to give comfort to other people, end quote. She ended up with a misdemeanor charge and probation. She also started attending AA meetings that year but couldn't stick with it. She started drinking again and the job slowed to a trickle. In 1960, she told an interviewer she was feeling stronger and optimistic about the future. But on August 27, 1961, she was found dead in her apartment. At just 36 years old, she'd suffered a fatal heart attack brought on by complications from her drinking. Yes, it is. I think she does some strong work in this scene. She plays a lot of big emotions without taking it over the top. This script wants us to contrast the outcome of Blaine's interrogation of Morris with his earlier success against Hoke, because it shows us that what once worked for Blaine in the courtroom is no longer effective. You did. One of the reasons I was happy to get this assignment is because it gives me a chance to talk about the underrated Jeff Chandler, whom I believe gives what is probably a career best performance in this role. Chandler was born Ira Grossel in 1918 in Brooklyn, the descendant of Russian and Austrian Jewish immigrants. His birth arrived at the tail end of a massive boom of immigration that saw New York City's population explode from just under a million people in 1870 to over 7 million in 1930. From the 1870s to the beginning of the 20s, between 25 and 30 million people immigrated to the U.S., and just between 1881 and 1914, approximately 2 million of them were Jews. These Jewish immigrants did not all come from the same countries or have the same economic opportunities once they arrived, though. The Jews who came from Germany were generally better off financially and lived in Manhattan, while the Jews who came from Eastern Europe were poorer and ended up on the Lower East Side or Brooklyn, which is where Chandler grew up. As a kid, he'd already started to show an interest in acting, and in elementary school, he bonded over this shared interest with a classmate named Edith Mariner, although you probably know her by her stage name, Susan Hayward. His adolescence was marked by familial chaos. His father, Philip, would claim at his 1937 racketeering trial that when he accepted a job in the Metropolitan Restaurant and Cafeteria Owners Association, he'd unwittingly stepped into an organized crime unit. And that one of its leaders had told him that if he didn't work for them by forcing restaurants to pay dues and protection money they'd hurt his family whether philip's account is true or not i can't say what i can say is that he did work for an organization that was tangled up with some of the era's most notorious mobsters including dutch schultz and lucky luciano and i can also tell you that the judge didn't buy philip's story after his conviction he got slapped with a 10 to 15 year sentence and was sent away to the notorious Sing Sing prison. As a young man, Chandler worked in a restaurant for years, but eventually looked to acting as a way out of his limited economic prospects. And it was then that his ambition and independent streak started to reveal itself. Philip had long wanted him to become a rabbi, but Jeff went his own way, not only securing a scholarship to the Fegan School of Dramatic Art in New York, but founding his own stock company that toured the country and did well until world war ii broke out like so many other young men of that era he put his stateside plans on hold and served in the army for four years achieving the rank of first lieutenant once the war ended he headed to hollywood to keep his dream alive not just as an actor but as a singer as well and he seemed destined for success in his book the great movie stars the international years david shipman has written one of the most accurate descriptions of how many mid-century moviegoers probably perceived chandler's physique shipman says he quote looked as though he had been dreamed up by one of those artists who specialize in male physique studies or a mite further up the artistic scale he might have been plucked bodily from some modern mural on a biblical subject for that he had the requisite jewishness of which he was very proud and he was not quite real above all he was impossibly handsome He would never have been lost in a crowd with that big, square-sculpted 20th century face and his prematurely gray wavy hair. If the movies hadn't found him, the advertising agencies would have done. And in fact, whenever you saw a still of him, you looked at his wristwatch or his pipe before realizing that he wasn't promoting something, end quote. Before we continue with that background, I'd like to briefly note the change of scenery. We just saw an establishing shot outside of the iconic Golden Nugget Casino on Fremont Street in Las Vegas. Back in the late 50s, Vegas still represented a novelty to a lot of Americans, since the city as we know it now, as the country's premier gambling destination, didn't come into existence until a couple of decades before this film. The Golden Nugget's opening date in 1946 makes it one of the country's oldest casinos. Needless to say, the area in that shot has been built up significantly since that time. And that original neon sign we saw hasn't been there in decades. It got removed and replaced in 1984. While it would have been interesting for this film to shoot inside the actual casino, these shots were clearly put together on sound stages. Okay, back to Chandler. Once he made his way to Hollywood after the war, stardom did not arrive right away. In the late 40s, he picked up some radio work and small film parts, and one of those roles got him on Universal's radar. For a young unknown actor in 1949, Universal was in some ways the best studio you could hope to draw the attention of. The studio in Hollywood in general was going through a time of transition. Executives believed they needed an influx of new faces to get people to come back to the movies, since annual box office returns had been steadily declining for years. As a way of addressing this problem, Universal developed a contract player system that would scoop up young unknowns like Chandler at bargain basement prices, lock them into multi-year deals, and then give them all the training they needed to become stars, thus leading to greater box office returns for the studio, while those actors were still under relatively inexpensive contracts. While Chandler did change his name for the screen, it had nothing to do with hiding his Jewish identity. As Shipman noted, he was proud of his heritage, and by the time this film was in theaters, he was known for helping out the Wilshire Boulevard Temple in Los Angeles with their charity work and fundraisers. So it was fitting that for Chandler's first role at Universal, he played a Jewish rebel fighter in Sword in the Desert, a dramatic thriller set in Palestine in the year prior to the founding of the modern state of Israel. The role was a kind of test run for Chandler, since the studio hadn't yet signed him to a long-term deal. But after just a single day of filming, executives saw that they had a potential star in the making and quickly signed him to a seven-year contract. Jack Arnold does a nice job of directing this scene in such a way that the film captures the action of this car chase without ever sacrificing the clarity of what's happening within the frame. It's an effective counterweight to today's choppily-edited, headache-inducing, shaky-cam approach to action that sows more viewer confusion than clarity. Chandler's breakout role came not at Universal, but as part of a loan-out to 20th Century Fox, and it happened with a role that would never be cast the same way today. Jimmy Stewart was at the start of a successful shift into Westerns, and Fox was looking for a relative unknown to play opposite him in Broken Arrow, as a Native American character named Cochise, an Apache leader. Chandler got the part and the role proved so popular, Fox also signed him to a film a year deal for six years, which meant Chandler then had two concurrent studio contracts. Chandler picked up an Oscar nomination for best supporting actor for the role and reprised it in two more films. I do have one gripe with this scene and it's about the way it ends. I know it looks more exciting on screen But why, when a car goes over a cliff in movies like this, does it always seem to immediately erupt into a giant fireball? This cinematic sin is almost as bad as when a character shoots a bullet into a gas tank and makes the entire car explode. Judging by the noticeable dip in image quality, it's safe to say this explosion shot is culled from pre-existing stock footage. In March of 1951, in the wake of Broken Arrow's success and Chandler's Oscar nomination, gossip columnist Luella Parsons wrote that she'd started receiving a steadily rising number of letters asking for information about Chandler. His career was off to the races, but it didn't take long for him to start to understand the assembly line aspects of the studio system that controlled what pictures their actors under contract appeared in, as well as how many of them they could throw at a rising star like Chandler to maximize his box office returns. Chandler appeared in five films per year from 1950 to 52 and four in 53. And within that timeframe, he had no problems voicing his displeasure with his limited artistic freedom. Telling gossip columnist Hedda Hopper in 1951 that quote, the actor is only a small part of the performance. He lends his intelligence and personality to the role, but the greatest part of the performance belongs to the producer who puts him in a certain type of part, the director, who tells him how to play it, and the cutter, who edits what's done. That's why I find being a movie actor not particularly gratifying. I want to eventually branch off into writing and directing." By the end of 53, he decided to spend more time on his singing career. He started recording records and traveling to sing in nightclubs, perhaps as a way to gain more control over at least one aspect of his career. He did well for himself in this regard, he even sang the national anthem before Game 4 of the 1954 World Series. He also consistently tried to keep up his responses to all that fan mail, because he recognized the importance of maintaining ties to the people who bought the tickets to his films. In fact, while this film was in theaters, a woman named Millie Mahan wrote into the October 1957 issue of Photoplay with this note of praise. Quote, for many years, I've joined fan clubs of my favorite stars and adhered to all the club rules to boost each star in every way. The only response I ever received, if any, was a form letter, sometimes a photo. Recently, I wrote to my favorite star for information about his fan club. To my complete surprise and supreme happiness, I received a personal letter from the star. In addition to news about his club, he told me of his next picture and where he would be making it and also added several heartwarming lines of appreciation for my letter is it any wonder that I have chosen Jeff Chandler to be my very top favorite." Quote. One aspect of Jack Arnold's direction Chandler probably appreciated is what we're witnessing here. This shot lasts for a full unbroken minute, with a minimum of camera movement. It places the actors within the frame and lets them do their work in a scene that requires a high level of commitment, as Blaine grieves his lost friend. While a long take like this one creates a higher degree of difficulty for actors, It also puts more trust into their hands as it sends a message to them that the director believes they can carry the scene without any flashy edits or other gimmicks that are often used to mask deficiencies in performances. Arnold, whom I'll talk about later, has already put this technique to good use several times throughout this story, but nowhere will he use it more effectively than during Blaine's closing argument. I'll highlight some specifics of what he's doing in that scene once we get there. Blaine's really getting put through the ringer. He gets beat up in court, his friend's dead, and now he gets beat up in an alley. The three biggest male stars to emerge from Universal's contract player training were Chandler, Tony Curtis, and Rock Hudson. Like Chandler, Curtis got off to a hot start in the early 50s, but Hudson took longer to find his stride, partially because it just took him longer to learn how to act. For example, he and Chandler co-starred in the 1951 boxing drama Iron Man from director Douglas Sirk, and Sirk readily admitted that at the time, he saw Chandler as the far superior actor. However, by 1954, the tables had turned, when Chandler lost out to Hudson for the lead role in Sirk's Magnificent Obsession. He was also relegated to watching Hudson take the lead reins in Taza, Son of Cochise, with his part relegated to a cameo. Chandler also started openly venting his frustrations in the press about how little time he had to himself and how he'd lost the anonymity he used to enjoy. He also started refusing to take certain parts. And at the time, that was a major no-no. If you were under contract, you took what the studio gave you regardless of what you thought about its merits, because if you didn't, they could suspend you. A suspension meant you went without pay and were also legally prohibited from working anywhere else. The reputational damage around town could also extract a sizable professional toll. When Chandler refused to play ball with Universal, which wanted him to star in Six Bridges to Cross, the studio made good on its threats and suspended him. But that didn't stop him from talking to Hedda Hopper about how he felt constrained, saying, I think I'm a fairly bright boy. I figure I could have made as much in some other business. Anyone in the world with imagination and initiative can become a success. Me? I like to push buttons. I was born to be an executive, an idea man. An executive is a guy who thinks things up and has other people execute them, end quote. Oh. As it stood, he was under the thumb of the executives at Universal, and they pushed the buttons.
1: They
2: look like they've been in a brawl.
1: Not with me, they haven't. You sure not? I'm sure.
2: All right. Get out of town, Prado. I kind of figured I had
1: him. Maybe if you could give me a better description of them. Come to think of it, they both looked like you. <laughs> you can save that phony laugh for the witness stand. When I get through with you, i will wish I'd gone to work on you with a baseball bat. Exactly my sentiments.
0: Hey, Diane's not messing around. This is one of the first times we see Hoke truly rattled. By the time this role came around, Chandler had starred in dozens of moderately successful but mostly unmemorable films, although Universal had recently started putting him in meteor parts, such as in the two 1955 films Foxfire and Female on the Beach, pairing him with Jane Russell and Joan Crawford, respectively. Great dolly shot here. Again, note the clean, squared camera movement that aligns with the way the characters are staged. Either looking straight ahead, straight at us, or in the case of the court stenographer and jurors, directly off to one side or the other. In 1956, Chandler decided to become an executive by forming his own production company. He'd re-upped at Universal, but this time with more flexibility. And this role gave him the chance, perhaps for the first time in his decade-old film career, to sink his teeth into the kind of weighty dramatic work the studio so rarely assigned him. Producer Albert Zucksmith knew of his reputation before taking him for this part, recalling how, quote, I became a sort of troubleshooter a script doctor at Universal, not only a script doctor. They'd throw me all the properties they were having difficulties with. There were also certain people I could handle and work with. Jeff Chandler was becoming a bit difficult, and he was their second biggest star at that time. I guess one of the reasons he was difficult was that he was the biggest, and then Rock Hudson came along, so they had me make some pictures with Jeff. Note the camera work in that shot. Arnold spends about an equal amount of time during that 30-second take keeping the camera still as he does moving it in concert with Blaine's pacing. This allows him to hold his focus on the actors without their back-and-forth feeling too static, a problem that can plague courtroom dramas. No one ever cites the Paradigm case as one of Alfred Hitchcock's best pictures. If Zugsmith was worried about Chandler being unhappy with this role, he needn't have been. Chandler talked openly about his relief over the change of pace it provided, saying, The script is modern, intelligent, and believable. I wear my own clothes. I don't have a fistfight every 10 pages, and I'm not required to ride a single horse. As Wanda Hale put it in her review of the film for the New York Daily News, given the chance to get out of the static storybook parts he disliked, Jeff Chandler takes advantage of the opportunity to play a dramatic role. He didn't merely take advantage. Finally, given the chance to flex some dramatic muscle, he clearly takes every chance he can to fully inhabit every element of his character. As much as Chandler might have griped about his heavy workload, he did a lot of it to himself. He basically became addicted to working, which was one of the factors that led to his divorce the same year this film came out. Also in 1957, after he finished making this film, he shot Raw Wind in Eden in Europe with Esther Williams and had an affair with her. Though, that was the other major factor. And here, I want to address something that she claimed about him. In her 1999 memoir, Million Dollar Mermaid, Williams wrote that one night Chandler asked her to come upstairs. When she did, he, quote, was standing in the middle of the bedroom in a red wig, a flowered chiffon dress, expensive high-heeled shoes, and lots of makeup, end quote. She claimed she started screaming and demanding he take off the clothes, writing, quote, this was no joke. He enjoyed that kind of thing. He was a cross-dresser, end quote. As she describes it, this is what led to the end of their relationship. However, after the book came out, someone who'd known Chandler confronted her about her claims, and she admitted she'd made it all up to please her publisher, who'd asked her to spice up the book. Just one of the many examples that illustrate that you can't believe everything you read. Tony Curtis, in his autobiography, wrote, quote, Jeff Chandler was the best of men, charming, elusive, somewhat cynical, introspective. Quote. However, outside of uncredited bit parts in the Frank Sinatra vehicle Meet Danny Wilson, the two men never worked together, despite being under contract at Universal for the better part of a decade and developing a friendship during that time. Now, had Chandler taken the part in Six Bridges to Cross, they would have. And when Universal asked Curtis in the late 50s what picture he wanted to do next, he said Operation Petticoat. The execs said they cast Chandler opposite him and even announced in Variety that the pair would star as a team. It's tough to piece together exactly what happened. Shipman claims Chandler dropped out due to an illness, whereas Curtis openly admits in his autobiography that he insisted on Cary Grant over Chandler. Box office over friendship, apparently. It's tough to say exactly what would have happened with Chandler's career had he not suffered a herniated disc in his spinal cord in 1961, the same year that Gail Russell passed away. The surgeries he underwent to fix it resulted in a blood poisoning infection and he died on June 17th, at the age of 42. Tony Curtis was one of the pallbearers at his funeral. This scene is important because again, Blaine seems to have Hoke on the ropes, but it's here that he turns the tables on Blaine and uses his own tactics against him. During the first case, Blaine used Hoke to twist the facts, but now Hoke's doing the same to him.
2: Objection withdrawn. Well, uh... It was the the first day we met. We were driving across the desert in my Jeep and talking about Larry Bell and and football. And you you said something that kind of surprised me. You mentioned that you'd seen me play once. And you even remembered the the game and the date and (laughs) the pass that I caught to make a touchdown. And you remember that I was an All-American, but something that I missed out on. But the way you said it, it it made me feel good. Made me feel real friendly toward you. Well, I I know I felt that way because after that, I I told you something, something real personal, something that I'd never tell anybody who wasn't a friend.
0: First rule of questioning a witness. Never ask a question you don't already know the answer to. Blaine skips around this when in the lead up to this interaction, he gets Hoke to characterize him as a friend and then essentially accuses him of lying about it. It's also worth noting that when Blaine did talk to him about football earlier in the film, he was trying to build a bridge of false friendship with the goal of using Hoke, but now Hoke has turned Blaine's own actions back around on him, doing the same thing and forcing Blaine to realize how damaging it can be to sit on the receiving end of such manipulation.
1: Can't you get a postponement of the trial? Why, it's about over. Wouldn't it be a good idea to bring in another lawyer for the summation? Mighty Blaine has struck out, hasn't he? It's time for decisions, not self-pity. There'll be a new defense attorney in
0: court tomorrow.
2: Who will he be?
1: The man you deserved and never got.
0: Well, it looks like Blaine has finally learned his lesson. It only took three fourths of the movie. Before we get too close to the end, I want to talk about our director, Jack Arnold because his best work in this film is about to arrive. Arnold's parents were Russian immigrants and wanted him to pursue a secure, high-paying job such as a doctor or lawyer, but Jack wanted to act on the stage. He also showed an early interest in aviation, and by his early teens, he was devouring science fiction stories. However, when the Great Depression hit in his late teens, his family endured severe poverty, and he must have wondered what, if any, employment his future held. He beat the odds, got accepted to the American Academy of Dramatic Arts, and then booked parts on Broadway. Throughout the 30s, any aspirations toward directing hadn't manifested, and he kept himself busy as a theater actor and producer. By the decades end, though, he taught himself filmmaking through first teaching himself photography. In a moment, Diane will close the room's blinds, a clear signal that the marital bed is about to be restored. On December 7th, 1941, Japanese soldiers attacked Pearl Harbor. On December 8th, Arnold enlisted for pilot training. He was so determined to do his patriotic duty that he had his mom sew weights into his clothing to ensure that his diminutive size wouldn't keep the military from taking him. He had to wait several months for them to call his number, though, so in the meantime, he learned cinematography under the documentarian Robert Flaherty. After a couple years in the service, he started directing industrial and promotional films while continuing to act on stage. His big break came in 1950, when he was tapped to direct a pro-union, pro-America documentary with these hands, which netted him his first and only Academy Award nomination. While the film didn't win, it put him on Universal's radar and they signed him to a deal. Here's where Arnold really shines. This shot lasts for nearly 40 seconds. And while it started from Blaine's perspective, We eventually pulled back into a seat within the crowd. It's immediately followed by this unbroken shot that lasts just over a minute and a half. In this shot, the camera paces back and forth with Blaine and based on its positioning, it puts us directly into the point of view of one of the jurors. In other words, the film is asking us to step into their shoes and imagine ourselves in their situation. I spoke earlier about the power of the studio system during this era And Arnold's first directorial assignment at Universal would give him a crash course in the tensions that would define the career of many a studio director in the 50s. His own creative wishes versus the business-minded focus of his employer. For his debut project, Girls in the Night, Arnold wanted to make a serious film about young people's struggles. Universal wanted an exploitation picture they could sell on sex appeal. But it wasn't long after that misfire that he found his niche And the films for which he's best remembered today his name is synonymous not with films like this one but with 1950s sci-fi and more specifically with the 3d craze that skyrocketed in popularity in 53 before crashing back down to earth in 54. arnold directed four 3d films in a row during that time span it came from outer space the glass web creature from the black lagoon and its sequel revenge of the creature arnold was such a whiz with 3d That when Revenge of the Creature finally came out in 1955, and at that point 3D had disappeared from theaters across the country for almost a year, its 3D screenings were such a surprise hit that it almost spurred Hollywood studios to greenlight another round of films shot using the technology. While it came from outer space and Creature from the Black Lagoon can easily be considered high-water marks of 1950s sci-fi, Arnold was also adept at elevating bad scripts into minor but enjoyable films, See, for example, Tarantula and Monster on the campus. But when he linked up with a talented writer, the results could be gold, such as on It Came From Outer Space, which was an adaptation of a Ray Bradbury story.
1: I asked only three questions. Could the client pay my fee? Would the case be front page news? And could I win the case? And I won my cases. Until the word went around If you're guilty, get James Gordon Blaine.
0: That's a riff on Get Me Geisler, which I referenced earlier. Now, it was the Incredible Shrinking Man, an adaptation of the great science fiction writer Richard Matheson's novel, that proved to be Arnold's crowning sci-fi achievement. Once Universal saw the early results, before it had even hit theaters, they assigned him his first bona fide A picture, which just so happens to be this film. Even though his directorial career hadn't begun in sci-fi, it's not hard to imagine that Arnold relished the challenge of proving he wasn't just a one-trick or one-genre pony. In his book Science Fiction in the Cinema, John Baxter categorizes Arnold's directorial style this way, It is important to discard conventional concepts of cinematic style before considering Arnold's work, or for that matter the work of most other modern sci-fi filmmakers. None of them offer the looming low-angle images of Wells, the bravura cutting of Kubrick, the complex philosophy of Siegel. Formal photographic brilliance, montage, and arresting acting performances have no place in a form that is mostly mime and mask. Many of the most important and beautiful scenes in Arnold's films might well have been directed for the stage. Entrances are bluntly direct from right or left of frame, action carried on as it is in the more recent films of Howard Hawks, without any attempt to underline it with cutting or photography. Whereas most directors look in the frame as a window, for Arnold it is a proscenium. Recognizing it as a formal boundary to the image, he employs it skillfully as a means of hiding action, just as a stage director might use the wings. Tension is not imposed by style, but engendered by friction between characters, or counterpoint between people and landscape. Shadows are avoided, action presented in pale patterns of gray and white. Like Alfred Hitchcock, Arnold has realized that the film medium is strong enough to stand alone without tricks derived from graphic art, end quote. Sci-fi writer, editor, literary agent, and longtime genre fan Forrest J. Ackerman put it this way, quote, his directorial style has been called clean, spare, down-to-earth even when out of this world. And a word? Direct, end quote. Nowhere are these traits more in evidence, in this film at least, than in this scene, Multiple shots in this scene last at least 30 seconds, some go on about a minute, and a couple go over a minute and a half without a cut. You probably won't be surprised to hear this, but such long takes took their toll on Chandler. When Dorothy Masters of the New York Daily News caught up with Chandler after a day of shooting this scene, he told her he was all talked out, saying, quote, I've used up all the words there are and exhausted my brain with the biggest memorizing job I've ever tackled, end quote. After this film, Arnold re-teamed with Chandler for the contemporary noir western Man in the Shadow, which pitted Chandler against Orson Welles. But it wouldn't be long after that project that he found himself shunted primarily into TV work, where he'd continue a prolific output for the next couple of decades, with a film sprinkled in here and there. Unfortunately, this wasn't unique to him. For a lot of studio directors in the 50s, the collapse of the studio system meant the collapse of consistent work on feature films. For example, his longtime Universal colleague and another underrated director, Joseph Pevney, followed a near-identical career trajectory. While Arnold didn't have a lot of control over his projects at Universal, given his contract, he still recalled his years at Universal with fondness, reminiscing later in his life, quote, It was exciting. We didn't make a fortune, but we had a good time. MGM was considered the Tiffany of studios, and we were the May company. MGM had Clark Gable and Liz Taylor. Next came Warners with Bogart, Bacall, and Edward G. Robinson. We had Tony Curtis, Jeff Chandler, Rock Hudson, and Janet Leigh. Fritz Lang was gone, and the young contract directors were Blake Edwards, Joe Pevney, and me. It was like a college campus, and we had great parties, end quote. The shot that's coming up will last for one minute and 40 seconds, almost perfectly mirroring the length of the long take that came earlier in the scene. I'm so thankful this film is finally getting a home video release because it helps fill out Arnold's filmography and prove that he did high-quality work outside of B-Sci-Fi pictures. This title has never been available on any home media format until now. Previously, you could only see it via a lousy bootleg VHS in the pan and scan format that cropped the film down to the aspect ratio of the old tube TVs, which completely ruined Arnold's compositions. Now that it's finally here and looking and sounding fantastic, more people will have a chance to appreciate it for what it is. When speaking about the film's opening moments, Jack Arnold biographer Dana M. Reeves says that, It is a gripping scene relying entirely on careful, intelligent staging and camera work. It is an example of Jack Arnold at his best. I'd go one further and say this entire film represents Arnold at his best. I've been talking a lot about the long takes in this scene, but I think this one's my favorite because of the way it concludes. Throughout various points of Blaine's closing arguments, Arnold has staged these long takes from different places in the jury box, which has the subtle effect of making us see Blaine's speech from multiple perspectives. That idea is driven home by where the camera concludes. We pull back and see Blaine from the collective perspective of the jurors, a visual signifier of what will come next all of them attempting to operate as a whole in the service of justice. I'm always interested in how critics of the day responded to films like this when they were first released, and this time around the critics didn't disappoint. It's worth looking at a few of them because they bring up one critique in particular that I find valid. Longtime New York Times critic Bosley Crowther wasn't quite as high on Chandler's performance as I've been, writing, quote, As the beleaguered lawyer, Jeff Chandler does a forthright and forceful stint. His climactic dialogue, however, has the hollow ring of theatrical declamation rather than the impact of convincing facts, end quote. His mixed response extended to the story itself, quote, for this workmanlike and sometimes absorbing melodrama is weakened by this basic premise, that its young famous but cynical criminal lawyer can sway juries by using either a vast knowledge of human failings and legal tricks of the trade, or when his own fate is at stake, simple fervent truths, end quote. Here's where Hoke gets undone by his own hubris. Doesn't he know that hell hath no fury like a woman scorned? The critic at the San Francisco Examiner said the film, quote, has decided appeal for armchair attorneys and detectives. It is less praiseworthy as a dramatic offering, relying as it does on a whole barrel full of cliches like crooked sheriffs, devoted wives, thoughtful newspapermen, etc. The best acting job is done by Gail Russell, end quote. The LA Evening Citizen News also wasn't enamored with the picture, saying it, quote, has some good moments, but emerges as average for the course. It's not particularly well produced, although Jack Arnold's directing rates a nod for doing better by the screenplay than it deserves, end quote. He also said Chandler's acting was, at best, adequate. Agree to disagree. Variety thought it fell apart by the end, with its critic writing, quote, the film starts out with an intriguing premise, but this is dissipated by a script that lacks credibility. The picture purports to preach the responsibility of lawyers and the sacredness of the American system of justice. But Chandler's courtroom speech on the subject turns out to be a mass of sticky cliches, end quote. I have to level with you. But other critics were far kinder. Edward Schaller, also writing for the LA Times, had nothing but good things to say about it, saying it, quote, takes a place well above the majority of courtroom dramas. As is made especially good by Jeff Chandler's clean-cut delivery of his sometimes lengthy speeches as a criminal attorney. And the Motion Picture Daily liked it a lot, describing its merits this way: quote, a novel theme, excellent suspense, well-spaced action, some pictorial spice, and top-notch performances by a good cast offset some story faults in this trim melodrama. The common theme you probably saw emerging in those reviews Is that the critics problem with the film didn't so much lie in the performances or the direction but in the script's final act i can see where they're coming from even though i believe chandler does a terrific job of delivering blaine's closing argument i don't buy that it would sway a jury in it he's basically saying i did a terrible job of defending myself but along the way i learned my lesson about how much more i need to respect the law i hope that's enough to acquit me now had i known everything that we've witnessed in this film and was sitting on the jury Of course I'd vote to acquit, but the jurors haven't seen all of that. So when the not guilty verdict comes down here, it feels like it's only happening because the script demands it. It doesn't feel like an authentic outcome to what we've just witnessed.
1: Gentlemen of the jury, Have you arrived at a verdict? We have, Your Honor. I'll find you. Guilty or not guilty? Not guilty.
0: I don't know. As much as I want to, I just can't buy it. I think part of me wanted to see the film build on top of the noir foundation it seemed to be laying during the first and second acts. Instead, we get a rousing three cheers for Lady Justice and an all's well that ends well closing act. Although, to be fair, it does have one great final twist coming up. Blaine, in his own unethical but legal way, started out the story by taking the law into his own hands. Hoke took that idea one step further and used his power to manipulate the law for his own selfish ends. And now, Carol will borrow Hoke's own ideas and take them to their logical extreme, by turning into the enactor of vigilante justice, so perhaps it's not so much as a twist as it is a simple inevitability that what's about to happen happens.
1: How about a statement, Jim? Well, save it for the hotel. Are you going to press charges against Hogan, Mrs. Morrow? Later. Uh, ask me at the hotel.
2: All that place. This way, Mr. Blaine. Can we have one more? <laughs> <laughs>
0: Given the production code's mandate that characters who do evil must be punished by the film's conclusion, it is in retrospect logical to see why these events occur. I always appreciate it though when films like this one get creative and bombastic in their adherence to what the censors required. While the courtroom element of this final act has its problems, I think that when the entirety of the film is viewed through a character-focused lens, its relative merits come into sharper focus. This is, at its core, a study of two men who begin the film at similar stations in life. Both have, by their middle age, amassed a not insignificant amount of power through unethical means, and both are initially unwilling to risk losing that power for a cause greater than themselves. For Blaine, that's meant ignoring morally valid but obscure cases that won't advance his career, in favor of manipulating the system for others who are rich and powerful. For Hoke, it means pulling the levers of power in an entrenched bureaucracy, in the order that keeps him at the top of the heap. Throughout the story, we see the direct and collateral damage their actions inflict on others. The difference is that while Hoke remains a static character stubbornly rooted in his own pride, Blaine learns the value of humility just in time to save not only his career, but more importantly, his family. It might hit a few speed bumps on the way to its real closing argument. But I believe this particular message about the urgency of moving away from arrogance and submitting to a moral compass that points us away from our own selfish ambitions is probably more relevant today than when this film was initially released. Good art both instructs and entertains, marrying a compelling message with stylistic expertise. While at times imperfect, this film does both for me, and I hope this commentary helped you develop a deeper appreciation for it too. Until next time, thanks for listening. Bye.